Welcome back to the Movable Type podcast, brought to you by University College London. Movable Type is a graduate peer-reviewed journal edited every year by PhD students from the English department at UCL. Please be sure to follow us on social media to stay up to date on our latest issue, new episode releases, and more. We are on Twitter at MovableTypeUCL, Instagram at MovableType underscore UCL, and Facebook as MovableType or at MTUCL. And if you want to browse our latest issue while you listen, head on over to ucl.ac.uk slash movable type. This episode of the Movable Type podcast celebrates LGBTQ History Month. And because we have so much to share with you, we're pleased to say that this month's podcast will be a two-parter. We are very excited to share these interviews with you in a spirit of celebration. However, we also recognize the need to respond to the context in which these episodes are being recorded. At the end of 2021, UCL made the decision to leave Stonewall's Diversity Champion Scheme and its Workplace Equality Index. It did so despite the positions, resolutions and votes of the LGBTQ staff and student community, its EDI committee, both UCU and Unison, and Student Union, in favor of a vote by its academic board. Broadly, this decision was based on the idea that Stonewall's support of trans right runs counter to academic freedom and could inhibit discussions about sex and gender. But for many, this decision discredits trans identities and is symptomatic of what Jeffrey Ingold, the head of media at Stonewall, has called a tsunami of transphobia. Stonewall is the largest LGBTQ plus rights organization in Europe, and for the last 30 years, it has helped create transformative change in the lives of LGBTQ plus people in the UK. Its Workplace Equality Index is a benchmarking tool for employers to measure their progress on lesbian, gay, bi, and trans inclusion, while the Diversity Champions Program is the leading employer's program for ensuring all LGBTQ plus staff are free to be themselves in institutional environments. If you want to know more about the ramifications of this decision and what you can do about it, we will make links and information available through our relevant platforms. In addition, we would like to highlight that this podcast is by and for the LGBTQ plus community at UCL and beyond. We support trans rights and condemn the ongoing harm UCL's withdrawal has caused LGBTQ students and researchers. Trans people should be treated with respect and dignity. This should not be an issue of debate. We also acknowledge that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the individuals and do not necessarily reflect the official policies, views, or positions of any institutions with which they are affiliated. We are starting this episode with writer, filmmaker, and journalist Juliet Jacks. She is known for her writing on trans lives, including her own experiences with transition, which she documents in Trans, a memoir, released by Verso in 2015. She is author of the short story collection Variations, released last year by Influx Press. Her work has appeared in The Guardian, London Review of Books, Granta, amongst many, many other outlets. She currently teaches queer fiction at City Lit London, 
and also on the Contemporary Art Practice MA at the Royal College of Art. Hi, Juliet. Welcome. Thank you for being here with us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Uh, we want to talk to you a little bit about uh, your writing. Um, a big part of your writing career has been that of a reluctant memoirist, we could say. Uh, you have talked about how you were asked to write about gender and ended up writing about your transition in your landmark fabulous uh, Guardian column that later became trans a memoir. Uh, but of course, a lot in the book is also about culture, history, mainstream discourse and identity, all concerns that are also at the heart of your short story collection, Variations. So my first question is, why fiction this time? And why fictional archives and found text? Well, I always wanted to write fiction. I got kind of sidetracked into memoir uh, when I was in my late teens, early 20s, when I really started writing a lot of short stories in which trans and non-binary or gender variant characters gradually moved from the peripheries of my stories to the centre as I sort of let my own uh, trans identity in more and more. And so that was what I was doing really before I had to start thinking about how to make a living out of something I was good at which is writing and um sort of fell into writing memoir I mean partly because I think I was also you know quite skilled at, at that and I brought literary techniques to this process of writing about myself but from the age of about 21 22 I had this idea for a volume of short stories that would take this kaleidoscopic approach to trans and non-binary lives and identities and over the years whittled the scope of the project down to a history of trans people in Britain because I felt that as well as trans fiction and there still wasn't much coming into the early 2010s and very little from the UK what there was 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 coming largely from North America there still wasn't much fiction but there also wasn't much history and I kind of found from my writing for The Guardian becoming involved in mainstream sort of liberal conversations about trans issues that the sort of transphobic wing of British liberal journalism which of course was going to get louder and louder and more and more organized one of their attack lines was that this is just a new thing you know you people have just started existing with your like weird identities and your like blue hair and pronouns and everything and you know obviously I knew that not to be true and indeed when I was in my early 20s one of the things I'd found difficult was that all the trans people I tended to come across were at least 20 years older than me. So I wanted to counter that historical ignorance. And I also wanted to fill this void for, for trans fiction. I've been very interested in queer fiction by Oscar Wilde, Virginia Woolf, Anne Quinn, Jean Genet, Jean Cocteau and, and others. And had read a few South American writers like Copi and uh, Severus Ardoy, who brought sort of gender variants into their works one way or another. And this made me feel that there could and should be a place for trans writers and characters in literature. And so that was the, the mission with fictional writing, literary writing. It was actually what I always wanted to do and how I always saw myself, even as I think everyone else, of course, saw me as a memoirist and, and commentator. And so the archival 
side of the book and the decision to present the book as a as a fictional archive of documents came from that historical impulse. I mean, I did a history degree. I've always been quite interested in in certain types of, of historical fiction, although usually from quite a modernist or postmodernist perspective. But this feeling that something I'd experienced at times of not being able to be open about my own identity. And of course, the more I looked into the history, the more I found that I've been the case for all sorts of gender variant people throughout history. And so doing it as this sort of fictional archive of, of largely rediscovered documents allowed me to explore the processes by which trans people have been silenced or marginalised and how that fed into this more long-term process of identity creation, political organising, cultural representation and so on. That's uh, fantastic. Um, now, zooming in on um, your story, Standards of Care, which also, of course, has um, a lot of relation to uh, trans history um, and uh, this idea of like the archive. Uh, can you expand a bit more on like the choice of a diary form and uh, its intertextual relationship to the documentary series about Julia Grant? Yeah, um, Standards of Care has been identified by a lot of reviewers as one of the standout stories in, in variations, um, which I think partly speaks to the fact that it just deals with lots of people and places and topics that are very close to my heart. Um, so it's set in Norwich, which is a city I visit every other weekend for football reasons. Um I love Norwich, as a, it's amazing. As a, <laughs> a, a season ticket holder at, at Norwich City. Um, and it was a way of like shoehorning a reference to, to the club into the book. Uh, but um, yeah, so it's set in Norwich. It's set in the late 70s, which is a period I've always just found culturally very, very interesting. Sort of post-punk and the sort of high point, but also the end of this popular modernism that you see in television and a lot of kind of youth culture of, of the time and in the punk movement. Uh, and so it's dealing with Sandy Payne, the central character, finding herself through, you know, through the medical process of transition. And it's sort of documenting this time in which transsexual people, I think, in the public consciousness went during the 70s in particular. I think they went from isolated, glamorous individuals like Roberta Cowell or April Ashley through to being something of a recognised group of people you know, with sort of stereotypes forming, with political organisations or support groups at least starting to appear, uh, the gender identity clinics starting to fix some sort of process for managing people's transition through hormones and surgery and psychiatry. And obviously this um, feminist and anti-psychiatry movement backlash as well. Uh, but really kind of before the point where there's that much openly trans culture so sandy is picking her way through this queer subculture trying to find people and places and scenes that suit her um and a lot of the stuff is a bit too radical for her you know she's in some ways she's a bit kind of mumsy and she makes friends with a couple of much cooler younger trans women who you know that relationship between them is at the core of the story really and the diary is a way of recording all of these things and of course allowing sandy to say things and think things that she's not able to say to the gender identity clinic who want her to present a very um 
conventional type of femininity and they won't give her what she wants if they won't. So it's recording this process of the tension between her just giving them what they want to get what she wants and it actually affecting her personality and then tugging her in the opposite direction is Eleanor, this trans woman who's who's in a band and plugged into things like Alternative Miss World, sort of pulling her in this much more countercultural direction that the people at Charing Cross wouldn't really like, but it's probably more true to her. Um, and obviously, yes, as I've said, this the 70s were a time when I think transsexual people were coming more into the public consciousness. So you mentioned the Change of Sex documentary with Julia Grant, um, which terrified the life out of Britain's trans community, I think, for a couple of decades after it was first shown, due to the you know very kind of cold and clinical and sometimes quite controlling or cruel attitude of the um, the psychiatrist whose voice you hear, John Randall, uh, at the Charing Cross Gender Identity Clinic. But I wasn't just drawing on that. I mean, there were other things. Um, I mentioned a play for today on the BBC Strand, called Even Solomon, uh, which is all about a young transsexual woman just trying to deal with her drunk and overbearing mother and her colleagues in the bank that she works in, um, that I'd watched while researching the book and had found, you know, I mean, there's a lot of stuff that's wrong with it. The medical information in it is, I don't know where they got it from. Uh, but, you know, the portrayal of, of, um, of the central character is very nuanced and sensitive and and quite touching and then there was a uh, open door which the bbc used to do which was just let the public make members of uh, make, let members of the public so there was the open door strand that the bbc used to do which was to let members of the public make programs and one of the open door strands just had a group of four or five transsexual women just talking about their lives and how they're treated and the medical services and far more intelligent and extensive discussion of the issue than you'd get on mainstream media now, I think, although that's often the case with uh, programmes from the 70s. So there was there was a sort of subculture and a kind of infrastructure that I was drawing on, of which the BBC documentary you mentioned was the most prominent and best remembered part. Yeah. Uh, no, and you mentioned also um, Sandy's sort of uh, being thrust into this scene with Elena and like these cool uh, younger trans women and actually something that stood out uh, to me from that story was that there was so much about like complicated friendship, girl from smaller city out and about in this intimidating London, the queer punk scene. It's basically also a coming of age narrative. And so I just wonder, how do you see this sort of cultural networks in relation to care? Do you see them as a form of care? And also, do you think your stories and narratives in general can act as a similar space for people who may not have immediate access to these community spaces? Well, yeah, I mean, to touch on the second part of that question, a lot of my writing, and really my entire writing project, at least as it relates to what I write about trans subjects, was really so that young people you know, people like the teenager that I was wouldn't have to feel as lonely and confused as I did. You know, in Trans Memoir, I talk explicitly about giving a language to a community. Um, and because it's a memoir and I have to be true to what had happened in my life, unfortunately, I have to do it through talking about the Smiths, who, you know, were obviously very important to a generation, particularly of small town, alienated, kind of pseudo-intellectual 
queers. Um, and Morrissey's terrible politics were present at the time, but, you know, we felt able to ignore them or, or brush over them and, and take what we wanted from, from the Smiths. For more on this, I think the, the Bad Gays episode on, on Morrissey is yeah. well. Uh, <laughs> it's it's really good, yeah. Um, but but that was the aim with with the uh, newspaper series uh, for the Guardian and the memoir, and also with variations. But you know, to extend that project a bit further back into the past, and yeah, to give literary people something to cling on to, because as I've said, I kind of felt that until pretty recently, you couldn't really find trans protagonists in literature. They're often just added to make a narrative seem more exotic or make some wider point about gender. They're very rarely written by trans people. They often weren't dealing with people's lived experiences. And that's not all bad. I mean, there's plenty of novels, particularly from the 60s, I've read that that do that, and they're largely by gay men, uh, that I've really enjoyed. Or they're kind of textual experiments like uh, In Transit by Bridget Brophy or Cobra by Severo Sardoy. Um, but, you know, I really wanted to to write something that experimented with form and, and sat in this sort of modernist or postmodernist tradition but also gave people characters that they could hook onto and relate to. And I think, yeah, Sandy Payne in Standards of Care um, has struck a real a real core with people because we've all been in that situation where we're around people who we want to be friends with, but we know are kind of being mean to us or making fun of us, uh, but maybe you make some sort of breakthrough. And that was, that was often the case for me, of course, as, as a teenager and trying to get into queer scenes and punk scenes and things and getting the feeling that everyone thought I wasn't cool enough for it and, you know, resenting having to kind of prove yourself in a space that claims to be really open and welcoming and tolerant, but usually isn't. Exactly. Um, it's such a relatable story. Yeah, exactly. And I think anyone who's had any interest in counterculture or maybe even, you know, more mainstream culture has, has been there. Yeah. And care. I mean, obviously the title standards of care is drawn from the world uh, WPATH, I can't remember what that stands for, but the health organisations, standards of care for gender identity clinics uh, relate specifically to, you know, the standards of care for the clinics, the standards of the care provided by the clinics, which as Sandy frequently suggests in, in her diary uh, are not great and are actually kind of making her feel worse. Uh, but also, yes, the way sort of informal care networks that people and more formal care networks that people make for each other. I mean, there's a scene where Sandy and Eleanor uh, go to this support group for for transsexual women and, and cross-dressers. And Sandy, you know, has to talk Eleanor into it because Eleanor is already familiar with the space and just thinks it's naff, basically. Um, but they go anyway. And, and then, you know, Eleanor in reaction sort of makes a lot of fun of Sandy for being kind of square uh to use the parlance of the time um <laughs> and then there's this this kind of you know back and forth between them as Eleanor sort of you know treats Sandy badly and then kind of makes up for it and then screws up again and uh and then things kind of bring them back together so so yeah there's there's all sorts of approaches to care in the, yeah. in the story I think exactly and it really stands out is a story that uh, as you said, has really resonated uh, with both critics and readers. So uh, 
in that vein, is there a story that you would like to highlight and that you think has not received as much uh, attention that you want to go go read right um, now? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I really liked writing the twist, which is set in the nineteen nineties. Uh, but written from the vantage point of about 2015, which indeed is more or less when I wrote the story. And, I mean, it's probably the most experimental story in the book. It's written as a film script, so, you know, because nearly every story in Variations is written in a different form. There's a couple of of diaries, one of which is kept secret and the other one of which is published, which is Standards of Care. But mostly the, the forms the forms are different and try to be appropriate to the time. So the 2010 story is a set of blog posts. 1950s story is a chapter from an invented memoir, which was the time that transsexual women were starting to publish memoirs. Uh, and actually, it's it's again, it's sort of written with hindsight. It's published in 1970, but it's covering the mid to late 50s. Uh, and, and so on. Um, and a lot of the stories are actually written with explicit hindsight. The twist is i mean the title is drawn from the marketing campaign for the crying game which is about the last time in history you could do this where the film was marketed having this big twist and everyone was just begged not to reveal it um (laughs) and i actually found out about this through an episode of the simpsons where the mayor says you know the chick in the crying game is really a man everyone boos and then he just sort of stops and realizes he screwed up and says man i mean man that was a good movie um (laughs) <laughs> but like I yeah so, so yeah so that was my and then it's you know the sort of the twist in the crying game is sort of parodied quite unpleasantly in uh, ace ventura which is quite popular with like kids at my school in the mid 90s um but also there were just a lot of films in the 90s that had trans subjects or trans characters that weren't played by trans actors i don't think were written by trans people or directed by them maybe had some input on the consultancy level so the twist is this script by this trans woman called Zelda who becomes involved with a mainstream film about the life and death of a close friend of hers uh, where they've, they've written, it's based on a woman, a, a woman called Juliana who's died of um, an AIDS-related illness and has published this sort of schlocky memoir to try and make some money um, while she was ill because she couldn't really do sex work anymore. Um, and this has sort of largely disappeared, but it's been dug up by this director who is turning it into a film. And so the the narrative is all about really like who owns the story, who controls it. Uh, but there's just kind of layer upon layer upon layer of like meta textuality. And at one point, sort of Zelda falls in love um, with an actor who's playing her. Um, so it all gets quite kind of complicated. Um, it felt like the most high wire act of all the texts in the book. I mean, maybe it hasn't received the same attention because, I don't know, maybe that high wire act doesn't come off or maybe just the the film script feels a bit incongruous in the rest of the book. I don't know. But um, yeah, it's, 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 it's one of my very favourites of the stories, I think. It's it's definitely great. I think it does jump out. But as you said, sometimes the script format can be... Uh, not as engaging for some people. I I love reading plays, and so uh, for me, it's really interesting. I love reading scripts as well, so I I really enjoyed that one. Um, And moving to the last story in the collection, uh, Tipping Point, Uh, it's a very unique uh, 
story, of course, because uh, it replicates your own experience, uh, but through a fiction lens, um, and the character of Edward McCreary, uh, who's a trans man. So my question is, why did you wish to sort of replicate your own experience, and what does it do to ha look at it from a fiction lens? Yeah, I mean, in each story, I try to sort of capture what I thought was the most important or interesting thing happening to the trans and non-binary community in that decade. Most of the stories broadly capture it, a decade. Mm. And I really do think in Britain that, you know, in the 2000s, you had a number of legal victories, most notably the, uh, the rather flawed, but nonetheless, you know, landmark Gender Recognition Act 2004, and the sort of performance art scene that comes out of that. And that sort of dies away at the end of the 2000s. And I think there's a realisation from lots of people simultaneously, myself, obviously a big part of it. But also people like Paris Lee, CN Lester, Transmedia Watch, numerous others, that the media is doing us a lot of damage and that, you know, something needs to be done about it. And a mixture of kind of external pressure, creating our own media institutions, but also infiltrating the ones that exist. Uh, and using social media to, to build up platforms for ourselves, you know, could all be ways of trying to tackle this problem. And I think Ed, at some point, in Tipping Point, tries all of these things. Blogging, Twitter, writing for newspapers in Belfast, where he lives. Um, and finding that the actual physical trans activist scene, despite the kind of utopian promise of the internet, actually remains very London-centric. I think it does, maybe London and perhaps Manchester, but yeah, broadly speaking, London-centric. So uh, in that story, you know, Ed finds himself sort of finding an audience almost by accident or a much bigger audience than he expects for a post about Time magazine's landmark tipping point article of May 2014. Uh, and I think it did signal a tipping point, just not in the direction we were hoping because um, I feel like lots of things have got a lot worse since then. But, um, you know, Ed sort of writes a critique of that. And again, it's that classic thing, and I think it goes back to this sort of 70s problematic of things get a bit better. You, you know, you who are pushing for change kind of critique the nature of that change and want things to get better still. Uh, this is taken as you being ungrateful and sort of contributes to quite a lot of pushback, which is the dynamic at play in the story. Um, I mean, yeah, it obviously has parallels with my own uh, experiences as a writer, particularly the first sort of year or so that I was writing about trans issues for The Guardian when I was living in Brighton. And even in Brighton, found myself sort of, you know, not... I could I could go to London for certain events, but, you know, even, even in Brighton felt a bit cut off from from the centre of, of this activity, really. And it was one reason why I moved to London in 2011. But obviously Ed is in, in Belfast and is much more cut off. So I wanted to sort of, you know, try and tap into people who felt like that. And that was people I've met online in real life uh, in the first half of the 2010s, which is when really my peak of doing this sort of work. Um, but also, yeah, I just wanted to convey some of the frustrations of working within mainstream media because, I mean, you know, it's it's been a problem for decades, really. I mean, I think since the 80s, probably, when, you know, with a mixture of um, the minor strike and then the, uh, the printer strike at Wapping, um, you know, the Conservatives took a lot of power away from the trade unions and gave it to the media. 
Um, and you know, this is something that the new Labour government sort of embraced rather than pushed back against and sort of entrenched. And we've really seen it um, in this last decade uh, with Brexit and the 2019 election campaign, I think, and everything that's happened since. Like the media basically run this country now. Um, and, you know, politicians, basically their role in the system is to just kind of convince the media that they are the right people to, you know, basically do PR for the oligarchical interests that that media pushes for. Um, and so working within that media is becoming increasingly difficult. And for some reason, I'm not really sure why, because it's not really a left-right issue. Um, I mean, I have lots of theories on, on why, but I think that's probably a little bit beyond the scope of this podcast, but you can find it elsewhere if you want. Um, you know, that that corporate media, is, as well as sort of the more predictable stuff, like deciding it doesn't want any redistribution of wealth, um, it's also decided to be just searingly transphobic. And maybe this sort of taps into conversations about funding and the NHS here and, and public spending and taxes, which might account for some of it. Um, but yeah, the sort of media political complex is really, really clamping down on, on trans and non-binary rights, representation and healthcare. And so I think the story is sort of trying to capture how that process works as as, as well. I mean, as well as bringing in a quite cathartic take on some of my own frustrations with the industry. I mean, obviously, I went into that quite a lot in Trans and Memoir, and it was really important for me to do it in that book. Like, that book had to be a book about the media as well as about my transition. Um, but obviously, doing it through fiction means you can maybe say things that you can't in a more straightforwardly autobiographical space. And yeah, of course, like everyone is going to read that story and, and think, oh, right, okay, we're taking this as autobiographical to some extent. Um you know, if that's how people read it, you know, I'm not really, I'm okay with that. And even if I wasn't, there'd be nothing I could do about it other than not write like that. So, you know. Exactly. Um, I do want to come back to the um, issue with media and representation, but just very quickly, because you've brought it up several times in this interview. And also I noticed reading through the collection, um, you, uh, center this idea of decentralization, actually, of discourse, healthcare, spaces, and events in the UK, um, because, of course, everything is uh, very London-based, and you mentioned this idea of it's easier for everyone to get to, and you mentioned uh, living in Beth, Belfast, Brighton, having feeling like you had to move to London and everything. So how do you, first, do you see this as changing anytime soon, and Regardless, how do you think this could be slowly accomplished? Because I do feel like it's a necessity. Um, yeah, general. I mean, as as more and more people, more and more like trans and non-binary people come out in different places, you know, the nature of those places will change, and you know, communities will build up. You know, not just in places where they are already, like London, probably Glasgow and Edinburgh, Manchester, maybe Liverpool, maybe Brighton. But yeah, places, you know, like Bristol or Southampton or Newcastle or Norwich or uh, Cardiff or or Belfast, you know, so places that are, you know, more kind of regional centres, regional capitals, I think, will probably, and to some extent are already obviously producing 
um, community support networks and infrastructures as well as just having you know, actual like trans and non-binary people in them. So I think gradually that will change. I mean, the position of trans activism and community at the moment is hard to read. I mean, partly, well, very big part because of the pandemic and partly because, and you know, one of the things the pandemic has done has accelerated this mediatization of politics. It's sort of more or less eliminated organised politics with a hand, exception of, you know, occasional waves of demos like the Black Lives Matter ones or the Kill the Bill ones. Or the big trans rights demo at uh, Parliament Square last summer that I went to. But, you know, mass politics at the moment and more kind of community organised politics, still not really back, I don't think. And so, you know, the media has held even more sway than, than usual. And the media has also been, yeah, like I said, staggeringly hostile to, to trans and non-binary people over the last few years. Uh, and a lot of this, of course, is the fallout from the 2019 election, which was, you know, really a kind of defeat, not just for the left, but for the young and, you know, for anti-racism movements, really. And sort of, you know, Corbyn's Labour was more accommodating to trans people, I think, than it has been before or since. I mean, it was still a very long way from perfect, but it was it was definitely better. Um, so so it's hard to say how people are going to regroup. Um, but, you know, maybe people have found more online networks during the pandemic that can be transferred into, you know, physical spaces as and when it becomes more amenable. Definitely. Um, that's the hope, of course. Um, and uh, in the context of uh, the media uh, discourse that we've been discussing, uh, can you share your thoughts on institutions like the BBC or UCL choosing to end their affiliation with the Stonewall Diversity Champion Scheme? Yeah, I mean, look, I've not actually paid as much attention to this as you might expect, partly because I'm just so exhausted with all of it. Of course. Um, and, you know, I've been doing this for more than a decade now. And, you know, as I said earlier, my inclinations are much more towards the arts and, and literature than actually to direct activism and, and this type of politics. Um, I mean, it's very obviously a product of this transphobic media backlash which, you know, whenever you heard people talk about the right to free speech and it's only ever the right to free speech for opinions that they like uh, and it never, ever considers the material consequences of that speech and indeed what it's intended to do, uh, the intention with this transphobic media backlash was always to set the stage for, you know, attacks on our rights, attacks on any institution that protected us. And, you know, Stonewall having moved from not including trans people to including trans people under their umbrella in, I think, 2015, quite recently, um, you know, as a consequence, has been really at the centre of this, like, targeted backlash. Uh, I mean, I don't really know enough of the ins and outs of the diversity champion scheme, to be honest. Um, I'm sure it has its, its faults. Um, but, you know, the... In this context, the withdrawal from institutions like the BBC uh, and others is very much sort of, you know, an act by by those institutions to say, look, you know, we do not welcome you. Um, it's very obviously intended to send that signal and, you know, to say to other institutions, you know, you can exclude trans people, you know, you this is an acceptable way to behave. Yeah, that is uh, 
like a terrible state of, of affairs. We can say it messes with the environment. We've had interviews with uh, people who actually work within these institutions as well, and it's had uh, quite a, a negative impact on yeah. no, I'm sure. them as it's as it's meant to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so moving away from the activist side to wrap things up, uh, what uh, artistic projects are you looking forward to this uh, year or in the nearby future? Um, well, I'm bringing out a book uh, called Front Lines this summer, which is a collection of my trans journalism from the 2010s. And I wouldn't say drawing a line under my movement in that world because there will always be things to say and you know but maybe making interventions more rarely and um yeah largely you know largely I'm teaching a lot more I'm writing more screenplays and scripts um I might write a novel I'm not sure yet Ooh. there's there's a very vague idea and none of these things Exciting. have an awful lot to do with transness Really, because I, I do feel like with, with the memoir, with um, the Guardian series, with variations and with all the journalism I've done, you know, I've said the bulk of what I need to say about that. Uh, so all of these other things I'm writing are to do a lot with more direct politics. Uh, I've been quite interested in the work of Trevor Griffiths recently, who who does a lot of quite directly political playwriting from a sort of left perspective. Um but I'm still trying to find new direction as well, partly because of, yeah, coming to the end of this big cycle of trans writing and partly because there hasn't really been new directions politically since the last election, like largely because of the pandemic. So it's hard to know what I'm plugged into at the moment. But yeah, moving back towards the arts, I think, for the time being and sort of cultural journalism and and an interest again in more experimental forms of art and literature and film. So we'll see how that manifests. Oh, we are so looking forward to that potential novel, to those new uh, projects uh, in filmmaking. So lots of things to look forward to. Thank you so much for being with us today. Ah, thanks for having me. Our second guest is Ben Miller, historian, writer, and doctoral fellow at the Graduate School of Global Intellectual History at the Freie Universität Berlin. He has taught on queer history, literature, and visual cultures at the Humboldt Universität and the New Center for Research and Practice. He is also co-host of Bad Gay Podcast with Hugh Lemmy, which looks at complicated queer people through history to provide a more nuanced representation of queer history and what it means to be a bad gay. In addition to the podcast, Ben and Hugh are authors of the forthcoming Bad Gays, A Homosexual History, which will be published by Verso later this year. Hi, Ben. Thank you for being here. Hi. Thanks so much for having me, Roxanne. How are you? I'm doing okay. We had a rare three days in a row of sun in wintry Berlin, and so I feel like my batteries are somehow starting to recharge. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, here's been rain and more rain with uh, some chilling wind for change. It's the gray that gets me. I just, I feel like it's turning into a mushroom, but. <laughs> well, there are worst things to be. <laughs> I suppose. Speaking of which, we might say, um, you're notorious for your role on the very fabulous podcast, Bad Gays. Now in its third season with a book forthcoming, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, can you tell us a bit about your origin story? 
Sure. Uh, notorious. God, you make me sound like I'm wanted in seven states. Um, I don't think <laughs> the feds are on to me yet, but uh, yeah, so uh, Bad Gays, uh, we're now in our fifth season, um, and we started out uh, a few years ago. It was actually the uh, idea originally of my co-host, who's a wonderful writer and uh, friend named Hugh Lemmy, and uh, it was the result of nine hours of conversation in Barcelona that was supposed to be one coffee, um, but then it was actually the first time we'd ever met, um, and then we just couldn't stop talking and then decided to see if the idea was anything. Um, and I think at the beginning, we thought we were making it for four people um, and then have been enormously gratified and, and surprised and humbled by how many people the show seems to speak to and the concept seems to, to speak to and the reaction that we've gotten from people about the work that we do. Um, both of us, I think, had had the experience of trying to do various kinds of queer work in mainstream media outlets. Um, me, I've always liked working also outside of, of academia, and he was not an academic. And both of us had had the experience of being told that people needed everything to be at this kind of very basic 101 level, that if you went deeper than that, or if you went um, to a more interesting place than that, immediately people wouldn't go there with you and people wouldn't follow. Um, and we had a slightly different bet, which was that we thought that there was an audience that was ready for a more complicated and a more nuanced conversation and a conversation where, while we don't use I mean it's not a it's not a show by and for academics it's a show addressed to a to a popular audience and not to any specific academic debates we also don't feel the need to define every single thing or to um, really spell everything out we we are speaking to an audience that has some familiar with um, queer lives and queer history um, and then bringing them into the stories of these really fascinating people. Um, so that's kind of the philosophy behind the show and, and, and why I think it's worked, because I think there are just a lot of people who are really ready to be spoken to and to engage with a queer media that treats them like grownups. That's fantastic. Uh, sure, that's uh, what drew me in at the beginning. And also this idea of speaking about uh, evil and complicated people and complicated uh, discourse. And uh, on that, why and what specifically do you think is overlooked in conventional representations of queer history? And what do you see as conventional representations or like more mainstream representations? Well, I think it's really important to say that, you know, bad gaze is not uh, blazingly original you know, the first person to ever go there, the first the first show to ever go there thing, right? Bad Gaze sits upon and forms a part of um, a conversation that's as old as, as queerness itself um, about what our history is and how we can think about it. Um, but what we both noticed was that the complexity of that conversation is in the very mainstream, um, often overshadowed by 
a kind of simplistic form of representation that doesn't account for the full complexity of queer lives and actually doesn't do a very good job of telling us how what we think of as queer came to exist um, for various reasons that make a lot of sense uh, historically the version of queer history where we are all born this way and where there's some relatively stable perhaps genetically oriented um, you know gay gene or lesbian gene or trans gene um, and you know the, in the bad old days we were oppressed and we were uh, pushed down and pushed out and we had to hide and now we're out and now we're here and now we get married and period that story has a lot of enormous appeal and makes made sense i mean i i don't it's not a strategy i would have ever used or agreed with but i think you can understand how it made sense to some people as a strategy for combating medicalization for combating um sodomy laws um and having a sort of rights struggle uh, but that story is very limited uh, and it's also untrue uh, there have been a lot of different historical configurations of sexual identity and gender. Most of them bear very little resemblance to what we do now, whether we're talking about queer people now or straight people now. Um, and so what's, what's sort of interesting to us is to think about how do we tell the story about how what we think of as homosexuality came to be through the story of some really interesting and complicated and evil people. Um, and the word complicated is in there for a reason. I mean, this is not, neither one of us wanted to make a show where we tried to sort of take famous and well-known people and knock them off their pedestal. Um, you know, the, it's not, this is not a your faves are problematic, the gay version of the podcast. Um, <laughs> the goal instead was to think about what is having this conversation now contribute to our understanding of the actual version of um, the evolution of queer identities and queer people, which is a history of struggle, which is a history of contestation, um, and which is a history in which um, the bad, I think, has to have as much a place as the good in terms of how we tell it. Yeah, that makes total sense. Um, you have had uh, some episodes that for me have been like, your faves are problematic though, I have to say. <laughs> like, well, um... we do some of it, but it's a, it's a mix, right? <laughs> Just like every, if for every, any given season, we have a limit on the number of serial killers because we don't want to turn into a true crime podcast. Um, so we have to, it's, it's all about balance. Sometimes it's yeah. your faves are problematic. Sometimes it's, you've never heard of this person and they tell us something really interesting about queer history. Sometimes it's this person, you know, died in shame, someone like Roger Casement, this person died in shame, but actually we think yeah. they were pretty great. Um, and sometimes it's, um, yeah, your face are problematic. But. Yeah, that um, on that to uh, topic, uh, in your early episodes, you actually mentioned that you would focus on men because, and I quote, love this quote, uh, cis men are definitionally the most bad. Uh, but in the, uh, then you introduced, um, the likes of uh, Gertrude Stein, my problematic fave, and then uh, Radcliffe Hall as well. And you mentioned like other um, people who 
uh, might identify differently. So what prompted you to open the pool of bad gays? Yeah, as my as my friend, uh, the artist Sholem Krishtalka likes to say, homosexual men are just men, but worse. Um, but the, <laughs> the uh, originally when we started when we started making the show, um, there were two reasons why we why we uh, made the decisions that we made at the beginning um, around who was included in our remit. Um, one reason was that we thought um, in order to build trust with an audience, uh, we wanted to start by staying within our own wheelhouse. We didn't want to necessarily debut or go out there making a show in which you have two cisgendered white men talking about how shitty individual women are or people of color or trans folks. Um, and, and we also thought, and this is a joke that I made then, which I somewhat regret about men being definitionally worse. Um, we thought the ethics of representation in anything about the lives of uh, heroes or the lives of um, sort of righteous people uh, were very obvious. You could not possibly make uh, a show of called the 10 greatest heroes of queer history and have them all be white men. But we thought that because of the kinds of people we were talking about, um, that in some way, perhaps, the ethics of representation would, would go the other way. Um, and the reason that we changed is because we heard from people. Uh, we heard from people who were lesbian or trans or non-binary or all of the above, who wrote to us and said, we actually do want to be part of these stories. We actually do want to be represented in these conversations that you're having. Um, and we actually, and this is the, I mean, the, the, the nicest part of all of it for me to hear, I mean, criticism is great and we change and respond to criticism, but there was a compliment implied contained in that criticism, which is we trust you to tell these stories. Mm. Um, and that's not a trust that, he, that either Hugh or I take lightly, and we work on it a lot. But you know, uh, so that was that was wonderful to hear, and then th that message came through loud and clear. And so we sort of we've changed the remit of the show. Um, the book we have decided to really focus on telling the story of the evolution of the white gay man how the white okay. gay man happened uh, and why it didn't work and what we should do instead. Um, and so the book is whiter and maler than the show is now. Um, and that's a decision that we made that people can agree with or disagree with. Um, as for the future of the show, um, we have now achieved rough gender parity in our new seasons, but we are still a Europe-focused show. We are still a show that is based in the versions of queer history with which you and I have the great, greatest deal of familiarity. Uh, so we get a lot of stuff about Britain, we get a lot of stuff about the US, we get a lot of stuff about Germany. As we move forward, we're really trying to figure out how, as this thing continues, um, we can start to get more kinds of, more different kinds of stories on the show, which is overdue. Um, and that's going to look 
like a few different things. It's going to look one of the main things it's going to look like, I think, is um, paying folks to come on uh, in during guest episodes who have done the research, who have done the work, who are already familiar with characters that that we might not even we might not even um, know to begin to to start talking about and um, narrate some of those stories and tell some of those stories and share some of those stories using our platform. So so um, more to come on that front. Oh my God, that is so exciting. Not only as a fan of the show, but also personally excited from uh, as a queer person from Latin America. I just can't wait. Um, so moving on uh, from the podcast to your more academic work, which uh, similarly problematizes conventional associations of queer liberation with progressive politics and uh, draws attention to this kind of ideological privilege primitivism <laughs> present in queer representation. Uh, could you tell us a little more about your um, academic research? Your, what, um, how did you become interested in that? Yeah, I'm uh, working on a PhD now uh, with 12 wonderful colleagues at the, at the Graduate School of Global Intellectual History at the Free University of Berlin. And the subject of my work there is uh, primitivism and the creation of the white gay man as an identity figure from about the 1919 German revolution until about the beginning of the AIDS um, pandemic in uh, the early 1980s. And uh, I decided to focus on that because I kept seeing sources where this strange kind of primitivist ideation was taking place in similar ways across large gaps of space and time. Um, and that seemed interesting to me. And it also seemed to me that a lot of the work about this had tended to focus on one particular national or national colonial space um, and seeing it in U.S. contexts in the 1970s in some of the same ways, using some of the same sources that I was then seeing it in Weimar Berlin context of the 1920s, um, seemed to open up a way of thinking about it and analyzing it and figuring out the relationship that it has to um, ideas in gay liberation that are very, maybe very important to a lot of us. Um, it just seemed like an interesting project to me. Um, I don't know that I think the PhD project is as much about troubling the distinction between queer liberation or the, or the, the association between queer liberation and progressive politics as much as it is about looking at the ways that progressive politics and incredibly retrograde and uh, violent and haunted ways of thinking and feeling and identifying can exist together in the same kind of political and temporal space. I mean, is that, is that, that's not my observation. There's, a, there's that wonderful book from a couple of years ago by Kaji Amin called Disturbing Attachments about Shanae. Um, and he points to the way that oftentimes the Shanae's story from colonial figure through this kind of desire for the racialized other through to this kind of model for a certain kind of queer political solidarity is often told in exactly that way that you, you start 
here and then there's this middle point and then you you go to the end the good place you get through that to get to something else um and that in fact it's you you have to think about it all is happening at the same time um and all is necessary like the the the, the particular version of the politics of solidarity that Shanae is espousing are dependent upon this colonial subject formation and they include this um this very haunted um, mode of self-identification. Um, and so trying to untie that knot um, seemed interesting to me. I don't want to talk too much more about it because it's not done. And I don't want to um, somehow come across this again in a year and a half and think, oh God, what absolute <laughs> bullshit were you talking because you were in the middle of writing it. <laughs> <laughs> That is completely understandable. Uh, but on the topic of uh, collaboration, um, also understanding that, I don't know, your your work is so nestled in this idea of identity and community, right? Um, but your work has also brought you into a myriad of creative collaborations with various artists, amongst uh, which is your recent work with A.A. Bronson on a public apology to Sixika Nation. Um, could you tell us uh, what brought you to that project and also just how you feel about collaborative work uh, of which you do so much? I really enjoy collaborating with people and I really enjoy collaborating with um, people who aren't historians. I mean, I really like collaborating with historians too. I really like historians. I was just at a three-day program retreat with my colleagues. I adore all of my colleagues. I adore their projects. I learned so much from them. Um, I also really like working with and for people who are potentially asking similar kinds of questions that historians ask, but answering them in very different ways, because I think you can learn something from that um, and from very different ways of approaching certain problems of the past um, and the specific project that you're talking about um, this uh, ongoing uh, public apology to six nation project um, maybe i'll just talk a little bit about that so people know where, what we're going on about um, the canadian uh, media and performance artist a.a bronson who now lives in Berlin and was part of the uh, art collective General Idea from the 1960s until the uh, death by uh, AIDS-related illness of the other two members of that three-person collective in the in the late 1990s. Um, he had discovered uh, during a period of of, uh, of family research, or he had already he had always known, I think, um, but sort of um, come back to in the in the in the past several years that his great-grandfather, uh, the Reverend J.M.W. Timms, had been sent by the Church of England after the signing of Treaty 7 uh, with the uh, Indigenous peoples of uh, what we call Canada to uh, run the first Anglican missionary on uh, the Sixika Nation, um, which is located in uh, what we now call Alberta, about 60 miles uh, east of Calgary. And he then, uh, working on this, discovered that there was another uh, living queer performance artist named Adrian Stimson, who lives on Sixica 
and whose great-great-grandfather was one of the chiefs at the time that A.A.'s great-grandfather was sent um, to be the missionary. There's Adrian's great-great-grandfather's name is Old Son. And there had always been this kind of family story about there being some kind of uprising and Tim's had run away. And um, so A.A. wanted to begin to address what might have gone on there and to figure out the real story and to apologize for his family's role and for his role in the settler colonization of Canada. And what we discovered um, is a story that is, I think, familiar given the number of uh, horrifying mass graves that have been found near residential schools in Canada in the past, in the past few years, um, which was that uh, this school, like many others, was uh, violently abusive. Um, in addition to being part of a dispossessive process by which, um, at, you know, at the very least, a cultural genocide was being committed, um, <clears throat> and a cultural genocide being committed um, on top of a on top of a a, a genocide, um, and people, several children had died, um, and there had been an, a, a sort of minor revolution um, and the, his great-grandfather had been forced to flee. Um, so then the, the, the work itself um, that was created from that, uh, there's a body of work that was created by Adrian uh, Stimson, who um, himself is a residential school survivor and whose father was a residential school survivor and who has many friends who are residential school survivors and was worked a bit on that. Um, and on those experiences and with those experiences. And then there was a, a book uh, that, that AA created with um, a short essay by me about the history and a timeline of the events. Uh, and then also the text of his apology, which he delivered uh, at the 2019 Toronto Biennial to Adrian and to a group of community leaders who were, who were invited for the event. And there's, there's ongoing plans to do more with this work, but COVID, um, COVID uh, disturbed the possibility of uh, return, uh, at least until this point. But um, for now, uh, people can people can Google it and they can look online. I think the the texts of these these texts are available. It's actually the the um, book is being shown right now in an exhibit in Edmonton, Alberta, um, and is also available in the U.S. from Mitchell Ennis and Nash, and in Europe from Esther Shipper. So um, that's wonderful. Uh, we'll make sure to share uh, links as well so uh, people can access it. Um, yes. And well, finally, I uh, really want to ask you about um, your essay, uh, Time is a Queer Thing, which you wrote in uh, 2018. And there you mentioned uh, this idea of uh, imprisoning nostalgia um, of contemporary queer culture, which is uh, very interesting. Uh, you mentioned also um, that it is something sticky with a desire to remain ignorant of the passage of time, to return to some idealized 1970s of the imagination, which results in too much, uh, not in too much engagement with history, uh, but too little. Do you think this is still the case? Do you see a way forward? Um, and also, do you see that your work has, uh, and your collaborative work has any impact on 
challenging those ideas of nostalgia, which seems to be the default mode, I would say, not only of queer culture, but arguably um, all popular culture and maybe not just popular culture. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God, it's weird to hear things quoted back to you that you wrote four years ago. Um, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> what the hell I could have meant. Uh, no, uh, Sherry, I'm happy to I'm happy to speak to this a bit, um, and and thank you for having somehow found and and read that. Um, <laughs> it's yeah, I think that there is a real well, you know, Carolyn Dinshaw called it a queer desire for history, and I think that as I said there, the feeling that certain things are lost or gone or inaccessible um, or things being lost or gone or inaccessible uh, leads people to long for them in ways that aren't necessarily bad. I mean, I don't, I think nostalgia has its uses and it's also to be against nostalgia would be to be like, it would be like being against air or something. I mean, it's too, it's too, <laughs> much, of a, it's too much of a feature of, 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 people as we currently are, or people as we have currently been made to be. But um, I guess what I was trying to get at in that essay is that to reduce the conversation about any element of the queer past to either rejection or full embrace is not adequate and that especially the things that we like and especially the things that move us and especially these, these documents or images or ideas uh, or archives um, by which we are moved should be the site of some kind of critical love, I guess. Um, that we owe it to them and we owe it to ourselves to think deeply and somewhat mercilessly about the things that we're moved by and and that and that that will actually potentially make us closer to them and make us better to better able to to communicate and to honor what is recuperable um or still active or vibrant or living about them. Um, I guess that's what I think I meant. That is very moving, <laughs> especially to hear in these times. Um, on the topic of uh, temporality and moving forward uh, in regards to uh, queer history and the community, uh, how do you see uh, UCL and a broader um, academic decision uh, for many institutions to move away from Stonewall and the Stonewall um, the Champions Diversity uh, Program? Well, um, as someone who believes quite a lot in academic freedom and in free speech, I think it is really uh, disheartening and vile to see these worthy ideas and concepts being disfigured and deployed by bigots to push an agenda that is 
um, absolutely diametrically opposed to any of the many contributions of feminism and queer and gay and lesbian history and theory to our contemporary moment. Um, it, for some reason, uh, and I know there are people who think about this and write about this and study this, has effloresced in the UK recently uh, to a great deal, this uh, horrifying anti-trans backlash. And I think it's important to remember that the people who are funding this backlash and the people who are engineering this backlash, um, no matter how much they may pretend to the contrary and no matter how many people they may be able to recruit to say otherwise, you need only look at uh, where the money is coming from and where it is going and uh, the direction that the ideas are flowing from and what the character of the ideas is at the top of that flow to realize that the goal is nothing less than the complete rollback of the entire feminist and queer feminist project up to and including the rollback of abortion rights, the rollback of um, the work that was done, incomplete work that was done towards sexual liberation in the 1970s and 1980s, up to and including the rollback of um, various legal protections that gay men and lesbians have, have managed to acquire over the years at what cost. And, uh, and so it's just important, I think, to frame decisions like UCLs in, in that way um, and to think about those decisions, not as stands for academic freedom or as um, taking part in some kind of vibrant debate about the relationship between trans people and gay and lesbian people and feminisms, um, or uh, as taking some kind of bold stand against trans activist overreach, but instead as capitulating to or collaborating with a growing far-right backlash that has every single uh, person um, who might be vulnerable to it in its, in its crosshairs. Um, so that's what I think about that. And I think it's just profoundly disappointing that an institution like UCL would decide to collaborate with that um, under, the, under the kind of pressure that it's been put under. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us. And it's been a great time. Thank great. you. Thank you so much for having me on. And as we've reached the end of our two-part LGBT plus special episode, we want to thank all our lovely guests, team, and of course, listeners for their support. If you haven't yet, please check out part one to be found on the same platform as this one. Tune into the Movable Type podcast next month for a very exciting Women's History Month episode.